1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and this is another episode of New Books in Sociology. New Books in Sociology is a channel on New Books Network. And today I have Dr. Ed Iguchi with me. And he is an associate professor in critical digital media practices in the Department of Sociology, Media and Cultural Studies at Lancaster University. Today we have him on the show to talk about the future of the presidency. Journalism and Democracy After Trump, published by Rutledge in 2022. Thank you, Dr. Gucci, for joining us on the show today.
0: Well, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoy what you uh, do with all these podcasts.
1: So the beginning question that everybody's yearning to learn more about is how you came about writing this book. I mean, after all, uh, President Trump's legacy wasn't the... uh, uh, I would say probably wasn't the most welcomed uh, maybe in the United States and, and uh, in other parts of the world. But, but yet you still took the time to uh, continue writing on Trump. So what brought you to this project?
0: Well, we did a first uh, edited collection by uh, Rutledge, uh, the Trump presidency, Journalism and Democracy, a couple years ago. And that was really trying to understand the first hundred days, the first year uh, at the most by the time that that came out, uh, uh, about how Trump may or may not be influencing the way people talked about campaigns, people talked about uh, issues of trust, uh, respect disinformation when that was starting really as alternative facts and and fake news some of those terms that have kind of seemingly left the the platforms that, that we talk on these days and it's now become mis- and disinformation which is always an interesting sort of thing to see how terminology changes in scholarship but that particular project was trying to make sense of the that that campaign uh, and those first those first few uh, months in the presidency. And we, we saw and we heard at the time that journalism was really going to be seeing a lot of changes. And I kind of wish, you know, when you look at things in, in hindsight, that we really applied more of a future studies sort of approach here and, and did more prediction or speculation about what was going on in the future or what we could expect. But really, I think so many of us were just rattled by the – daily changes that had happened in how journalists covered the news, how they were forced to cover certain things because of the spread and the uh, indignities that were coming through in uh, social media in particular, and how the electorate really was struggling itself in either finding ways to, the, to, to express themselves in a, so- a society that wasn't open to them. Uh, and, and you can see that it's either uh, social conservatives or or intentionally marginalized excluded communities that were finding themselves even more excluded. And so this project was saying, okay, well, I'm not saying that Trump is gone forever. We're not saying that the presidency's changed immensely and we're certainly not suggesting that journalism has changed 100% uh, into a completely different uh, uh, outfit as it was before. But we wanted to take a bit of a breather and say, what did what have we learned so far? And how does this maybe help us predict a bit about where we're going uh, in, in politics, political communication, and the social function and cultural roles of journalism? So these authors, some of them are the same, who had contributed uh, to the first volume. Others are new. Uh, and we're really trying to understand, did... Uh, did Trumpism end? Is Trumpism continuing? Uh, has journalism taken a time to to really reflect upon itself? Uh, and what are the lasting impacts of that presidency, particularly in political communication and journalism? Yeah, that's
1: another thing that I was curious about. How did you go about selecting the authors that you did for this book?
0: Well, the authors are... Um, this is still. This still went through a review uh, process, certainly, and it still is is uh, something that has gone through uh, a lot of hours of uh, editing and thinking and, and reflecting, and, and sometimes. It, you know, sit down conversations with authors about, about what they're saying and how they can say it. And uh, I learned a lot from from those conversations. And so I really find that this was, an, just like the first book, was an intimate sort of collection of different perspectives on journalism. And I come from things I think it's important to note from a, a critical and a cultural studies perspective, which isn't really all of what uh, journalism studies is. It's it's sometimes on the periphery of things simply because Uh, a lot of journalism studies still struggles with the global North and South divide. A lot of journalism studies still is rooted in so much whiteness and in U S centric. And I think UK centric sort of perspectives. And certainly in in the U S sociology is, is a bit different than more of a cultural sociology that exists in the United Kingdom, which is where I'm currently uh, living and working. And so, the, some of these voices are coming from a bit of that periphery where there's a little bit more of a critical stance on functions, roles, power power dynamics in terms of journalism. Um, but that doesn't you know, kind of exclude some of these other more traditional ways of looking at journalism through normative senses of practices, social roles. And so I do find that these some of these chapters kind of speak to each other in certain ways uh, from either a cultural perspective or from a normative uh, sense. And, and they seem to just blend really well together. We just did a book launch to the Institute of Social Futures here at Lancaster uh, earlier in April, and they gave some talks about these um these different chapters and i think that conversation even elicited a lot of really new th- new ideas about communication and journalism where we're not just asking questions of okay well what are the solutions to either uh, negative impacts of donald trump on political communication and journalism uh you know, using those types of words uh, and values in those conversations. But I was saying, well, let's not worry about uh, the solutions. Let's still evaluate what the problems might be. And, and I think that this book really tries to highlight what the problems are based in populisms, based in issues of politics, of fear, in distrust, and distrust, and some of the other things that are really, really um, s- still alive and well in journalism and have been a long time before Donald Trump came to the, the stage.
1: Yeah, one thing that you mentioned right away in your book in your introduction is this concept of post, and how you are a bit reluctant to use such a such a concept uh, when Trump is still alive and well, and much of what his uh, what he did while in office uh, is still impacting the United States of America and much of the world. Uh, could you talk a bit more about what you mean when when you use such such a concept post?
0: Well, yeah, I don't know that we're post Reagan, right? I mean, Reaganomics still exists. Certainly, the 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 idea of nuclear families, uh, war on drugs that, that preceded that. Um, a lot of the a lot of the things I don't know that were ever really done with a president. Um, some may be more uh, popular than others. Some may have instituted legislation or uh, helped with some sort of cultural uh, change. But I don't know if we're ever done with them, and certainly with Trump, whether he remains um, uh, even on the kind of in the in the back scenes, a part of the politi- uh, the politics of the United States. I don't know if we're ever going to be post Trump, um, or certainly in my lifetime, still uh, hoping I still live for a while. I think that there's still going to be that kind of flag waving, just as there is for kind of the the conservative, uh, you know, staunch conservative icons of past presidents and the staunch liberal presidents of the past. I think Barack Obama is still going to have some sort of iconic role to play in uh, democratic uh, politics of of the future. So we didn't want to say post as though post means some sort of we're, we're past it. Or it's over. Um, you know, I just spent uh, another month or so in the U.S. Uh, most recently, and I can still feel and see and sense in my conversations, in the the billboards that are still up in some parts of Florida, and in, in particular, which is where I was staying, that there remains a an anger in America that has been best expressed over the last few years through Donald Trump's rhetoric and through. A, iconic figures such as Trump and what he means uh, to them. And so we didn't want to say post-Trump because a, a lot of those policies still remain. A lot of the tensions still remain. And certainly there are a lot of people who, if they could tomorrow, uh, would probably vote for Donald Trump to have some sort of political Um, role to play in society. So the notion of after Trump, which is also in a title of another book that has come out by Journalism Scholar, seems to be the place to go. The question then becomes, what if he runs again? (laughs) What if we're not actually after Trump? Well, then I guess that would be a third book uh, to take a look at. But for now, that seems to be the best way to articulate um, where we are, at least in a normative sense of politics. But I think the thing to be concerned about is that we have such a fragmented society. uh, Some of it that has turned to uh, Donald Trump as that figurehead for uh, airing those grievances. And I don't know if really Democrats um, or progressives um, in the United States have a figurehead yet where they can express their grievances. I certainly think Joe Biden has been, you know, um, busy doing lots of other things. And and we don't really know what kind of legacy he would like to leave. Certainly having uh, an influence on the Supreme court might be one uh, COVID uh, at least kind of seeing that hopefully through to some sort of end at some point, but that's not, you know, he's really not become a bastion for looking ahead in terms of democratic politics. Uh, Trump remains that person for, for, um, uh, Republicans, I think, are certainly large swaths of Republicans, but yet he's out of office, hence the idea of after Trump.
1: Yeah, and I thought it curious just the other day watching the news. Uh, Dr. Oz is running for uh, state office, and they classified him as a Trump Republican, uh, and I thought to myself, "What? who's the last president who's still alive and only went into uh, office for a single term? And had a, had a party that, or a style of party named after them. There's no Obama style Democrat, although, you know, there is by style of practice, but not by name.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I try and explain sort of the rise of Trump one uh, in a couple different ways. One, I think that uh, the way we've, and, and this is speaking from my own research, but also as be, having been a reporter, uh, particularly in um, parts of Wisconsin and Illinois for a long time, a little bit in Iowa. And seeing that, I think the rise of Trump, if we if, if it's helpful to have that quick reminder or conversation is was was a trickle up effect. I don't think this was a, you know, the RNC certainly didn't come out and say, we're going to put this person forward and we're going to make everybody do a party line, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a vote that way. But um this came, I think, from a lot of local communities struggling with things uh, related to gender and bathrooms, uh, Ten Commandments uh, in public parks or in courthouses. Um, the, so, so, so issues of faith in schools. A, a lot of these types of things uh, continually the, the the racialized imaginaries of urban centers. Um, immigration and all of these things that were happening at the local level and that started to put people in city councils and in state houses and, and possibly even in, in Congress but but really early I think it was really city councils and school boards and state houses who wanted you know some sort of anti-clinton um, real sentiment to go to go in the the 911 the uh, days I think really took over a conservative movement after the Clinton years where conservatives thought, okay, well, now's our time with this, who was supposed to have been a compassionate conservative, um, you know, gets into office, George Bush, and 9-11 comes along and just hijacks the, that's well, probably a really bad way to say it, but takes the whole uh the whole idea of what conservatives wanted to do with nuclear families, prayer in school, all of these different things, and put that all on the sideline. And it turned into the war on terror, which became its its own um, really bad uh, social movement of sorts. And I think that, you know, George Bush was a down, you know, people really were disappointed with that missed opportunity for them, and then we had uh, B- Barack Obama, which was let's just continue to move further away from conservative values, at least to the conservative or the you know, some swats of Republicans, and let's go into a completely different way where race was now right in front of us, um, urban areas were right in front of us, education then became uh, changed. We still continued the the perpetual war as we always have, but and same you know, sex
1: marriage was also a topic. Yeah. Yes. So
0: Absolutely, and so this was this became a cultural war from from a top down. But then you started to see governors, you know, really rally together, saying, "I'm hearing what my local constituents are doing, and let's start building in some state legislation that's going to change and and, and threaten, um, you know, these this liberal sort of movement in society." And when that started, then we started to to see a, a that trickle up sort of effect where. Now you had all those people standing on a stage for the presidency, and Donald Trump was the one who was doing two things. One, he was he was speaking the most. He was an entertainer, he was um, bombastic, uh, but also he was starting to unveil some of the some of the 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 swamp. Uh, characteristics of politics, right? The things that get lost in the swamp of Washington D.C., where he comes out and says on on a stage with all the Republicans, uh, other candidates, saying, "Look, we've all been to Hillary Clinton's house, or we've all given money to Hillary Clinton, or we've all we all know each other, right?" And really starting to identify what what Mills and others talk about as that power elite, and I think that that spoke to a lot of. Um, citizens who were sitting back and saying, you know, our trust in these institutions continues to decline. Um, I knew they all were giving money to Hillary Clinton at some point or gone to some one of their kids' weddings or something like that, where uh, then it, it started to come out onto the, onto the top. So I really think that this was a trickle up effect of, of Donald Trump um, that came from a very long time of conservatives being silenced by uh, in their mind, anyway, by what they saw as the liberal media and um, politics completely out of touch with their realities.
1: Yeah, and he he took a uh, took a charge or took a stand. Uh, what he called in his uh, in his campaign is you know making America great again, uh, which I, I think suggested a change or to uh, take a stand or an attack against the status quo, which meant, as you said, draining the swamp. As he called it, getting rid of career politicians, or at least making an attempt to, but then also attacking the media. And uh, part of the narrative, I think, there was a post truth era. What does that look like?
0: Well, post-truth, you know, that's that's another one of those terms that I think was really live, uh, alive and well at least within journalism studies, and and then somehow we've we've moved on as so though we seem to have uh, solved the pro, uh, pro-truth issue by um, by saying journalism matters again, and I, I just I don't think that there's been a lot of really good critical um, reflection among journalists and journalism scholars. Um, that uh, about two things. One, that the post truth era still remains, and that we may have replaced that with the articulations of fake news, mis and disinformation. Those things are maybe in their their, their own way distinct sort of areas of study. But I think that's, that's the first thing. But the, the, the second thing is, I think that we haven't reflected well enough on that for many people, journalism's always been. Operating in some sort of post-truth society, so if if we go back to you know my reporting days, for instance, and I go into a neighborhood and there had been violence, um, I, you know journalistic standards don't necessarily allow us to um, take someone of a really junior police level to explain to us why this crime or why this violence had happened. Uh, we have to go to a certain level uh, or a certain source within the police to give us that information. When really the experts on the causes for a particular incident, um, if if we're for thinking back to maybe some of my reporting on a gang, you know, gang violence or something like that, and that in of itself, those terminologies become really, really complex. I recognize that, but. If from a journalist's perspective, if that's what we're 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 writing a story about why gang violence is happening, for instance, right? We don't ask the people in the neighborhood. Uh, we don't even ask the people in the gangs why things are happening. Uh, we go to the police and we go to pastors and we go to uh, mayors and we go to sociologists and we go to economic experts um, who have very uh, Specific truths as to what they, in terms of what they want to express, the people who are the experts are the the folks who are participating in some of this the street violence in that particular case, or the neighbor, the neighbors who are living in that area. And you know, I'm i drawn to the influence of broken windows theory, for instance, remains you know that that influence that continues to to be there in terms of. How journalists cover neighborhoods that if it looks dilapidated, it's because the people living there either don't care or they're poor or there's some other sort of reason and that it's an indicator of violence or an indicator of an unsafe neighborhood. And the journalist kind of hops onto that, because if that's what the expert tells them, that's what the mayor is telling them. That's what the police officer is telling them. That's the truth that gets expressed in the newspaper. And the citizen right, becomes what we tend to call in journalistic writing color. Right, it's the it's the anecdotes, it's the descriptive nature of so and so sitting on their front porch, uh, wearing this, um, uh, smoking this, having this conversation. Right, all these really strange and and weird characterizations that are often racialized, um, and they just become anecdotes. They become archetypes. Their, their truth doesn't actually come out as something that's that's uh, legitimate because maybe it can't be replicated or proven. There's not a statistic behind it that the journalist can use as what I like to call journalistic evidence, right? And I think that you can take that same sort of scenario of what's going on in, in covering a crime or, or violence or disruption or disorder. Um, again, those are characterizations from an outsider's perspective about what's going on, right? Gang signs and graffiti uh, and tagging means one thing to an outsider. It might mean something completely different to a person inside that environment. You can take that sort of scenario and I think apply that to how we cover politics, how we cover social issues. Um, we continue in journalism, this is before and after Trump, of course, to rely on intellectual elites and, and power elites to to explain uh, everyday situations and issues that make it into what we call the news. And that's, that's even um, been reinforced and expanded due to social media, social media and Hinman in like 2009 or something was writing the myth of the digital democracy. Um, and certainly I think we've seen that uh, come out that this echo chamber effect, right. continues uh, and is exacerbated by social media and Journalists, there are fewer and fewer of them, right? News deserts continue to expand uh, across the United States in particular. Um, That notion of truth and post-truth becomes really secondary or tertiary to just getting the news out, right? Or teaching journalism students how to go out and be professional communicators. So that post-truth sort of idea for many communities... Isn't anything new. Certainly, wasn't something that Donald Trump brought to the table. It's always been there, based upon how journalists tell certain types of stories that may not necessarily resonate with, uh, you know, communities' interpretations of what's going down in the world. So this post-truth sort of idea that we're that we're talking about, uh, from an academic, largely academic perspective has also seemingly been replaced by mis- and disinformation. And and sometimes that mis- and disinformation is fueled by technological deterministic approaches to understanding and doing journalism, where we can use AI uh, to to understand um, not just discursive aspects within text of what may or may not be true, in social media accounts that may or may not be quote unquote real and in deep fakes that have been uh, manipulated. There's no doubt that those things are great concerns. And we're seeing that as well. Most recently um, in the Russian war in Ukraine, that these things are existing. But but the conversation about post-truth, which was very much a domestic conversation about Donald Trump and political communication vis-a-vis journalism, has now become mis and disinformation that has been put into a, quote-unquote, other space geographically, such as Russia or to a virtual world. And I think we've really missed another opportunity to go back and say, well, have we really figured out what post-truth means or does it mean Um domestically in the United States without Donald Trump. It seems Joe Biden can say up and down and left and right. And those those are truisms. Um, but if Donald Trump said it, we, we were very um, suspicious. That suspicion, uh, that spe- speculative nature also of journalism seems to have dropped off a little bit when Donald Trump left. So, sorry for the really long answer, and there's probably a lot to unpack there. But I think that this is a very complicated conversation that becomes overwhelming, and people just maybe don't necessarily see the need domestically to have it anymore because we don't have somebody in office who we perceive as being a liar. Uh, And as I said before, so bombastic.
1: Well, and I think there's also something to say about the deinstitutionalization of truth, right? And uh, um, with the uh, opening up of the internet and the opening up of social media and the opportunities that exist for uh, anyone, including amateur journalists, to go out and write uh, write stories. It's opened up opportunity for multiple truths. So maybe instead of a post-truth, uh, it's maybe changed form to a, a, a society with multiple truths similar to a track of uh, you know, polytheism in society where there are multiple religions and which one is the right one, which one is the, is the wrong one. And it, and it up, opens up the opportunity for people to make claims that certain articles, certain sources are, are fake.
0: Mm. Well, and I think we also see that with, with issues of climate change, for instance, right? That, that, um, if, if you question the, um, the, the causation of climate change, someone will come back, uh, with probably with an advanced degree like we have and, and say, well, you can't question the the science behind this. And, and and it may not actually be that they're questioning the science. It, it, it may be that they're questioning something else that's ideological. Um, so I, you know, I don't know. I probably get in trouble for even even saying that because, quite frankly, it's not. Although I, I do I do a lot of work around climate change and and communication, but but even kind of having those types of unpopular questions says, well, how could you even question that? And 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 it's like, well, I don't know that people are necessarily questioning uh, climate change. I think they're they're questioning um, in the, that causation yeah. of it, and and that's something that I think the 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 intellectual elite just, just can't necessarily have. And I'm wondering what that means uh, for society then. And, and certainly I think the opening up of digital technologies hasn't helped somebody like Julian Assange, who has, uh, who's currently, you know, now the extradition has been um, approved uh, from by the UK to, to actually use the sources that are out there in front of them, uh, the resources that are in front of them to, to really, Uh, give us notions of truth. Right. And and now you're, you know, this is, this is governments who are standing behind saying um, you're going to be punished uh, for this when simply, you know, he, he just very well, may be a whistleblower, but there are certainly those who are saying, no, this goes beyond that. This goes into massive criminal charges and treason. And I think, you know, this all just then goes back into that sort of like swampy sort of environment of, well, how do we even interpret these things? And I think that's why we see so many people disconnecting um, from information. You know, the if, everywhere from doom scrolling to just complete disconnection and, and burnout from from information. I know I can only look at news sources um, in the evening, and and I teach this stuff and I research this stuff. But but honestly, that's really where a lot of us. Um, have have gotten to and i think that's even scarier for journalism for political communication and for creating social change and for social justice is when we completely disconnect i don't know what the solution is to that but i know that there's a problem in terms of how journalists are covering things uh, pre and post trump I and mean, we certainly when you see donald trump saying things like we're going to drain the swamp but then one of the major you know evening news sources moves their broadcast from New York City straight to Washington, D.C., I think that that's another indication of, well, journalists don't want that swamp drained because that's where they're getting the really uh, free access to what they consider to be news that for a lot of people out there aren't. I mean, I know I just got a, a text message from my my dad who's still in Wisconsin, and he's not sending me things about politics. He's not sending me things about um You know how the world's gone awry he's saying that a dozen eggs went from 79 cents last week to about two dollars and 29 cents i i think that you know there's a big disconnect between what journalists want to write about what journalists want to say and what audiences want to look uh look at and specifically in terms of topic uh and then there's the ideological explanation but certainly in terms of topic i think you know we have we have a disconnect
1: And what do you think has uh, caused that disconnect? What what is it that draws journalists to a different story than what the general public wants to uh, talk about and learn about in their their news?
0: Well, I have a different probably answer to that than maybe some other journalism scholars. And some might, I think, erroneously just go by uh, it's the ratings um, or it's the metrics. I certainly think that that is um, a, a part of it. But for me, I look at things from the, the sense of uh, the journalistic interpretive community and, and and how journalists function and work. And I, by journalists, let's let's stretch that a little bit to be not just on the ground journalists, but let's take that up to editors and to publishers, just for a moment, if if we will that that these groups operate not there may be some distinct differences in how they, um, their practices and some of their roles and functions in society, but they don't operate. I think as much as some journalism scholars would like us to believe, um, Really separately from other major institutions, certainly uh, influence of the you know of hierarchies uh, plays a, a role that that journalists make decisions, and or as they're making decisions, they have to deal with social pressures from institutions, uh, from uh, social norms, from within-house uh, audiences. I mean, there are certainly you know business decisions that that have to go into things, and there's a hierarchy of these influences, right? But one of the things I think is we're not really connecting journalism to notions of policing, uh, to notions of governance uh, well enough. Um, I think that you know, I remember, you know, as, as a reporter, one of the one of the first things you were supposed to do on a, on a Saturday morning was, you know, to go to the to the cop shop and go through a lot of the reports and see if you could identify any prominent names of people who'd been arrested or cited. And, you know, you, you I remember before your shift was over, you needed to call all of the different police stations and sheriff's departments to say, do you got any news for us? Has anything happened? Anything going on? but you weren't supposed to leave your desk either, right? So you weren't necessarily out um, doing things because you didn't have the scanner behind you. Um, And, you know, this was, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago. So the times have changed. Maybe you don't need to do that as much anymore. But I still wonder, um, you know, even as places like the Miami Times are selling off their buildings and and the the newsrooms are in people's living rooms uh, and kitchens these days, there's still that sense of, an agenda setting function, not just of the press, but of the fellow institutions. And if journalists start telling stories differently than how the elite want those stories to be told, there's going to, there's going to be a lot of problems. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, when I was at the state journal in Madison, why we always covered this kind of snowball every, every December, we would send a photographer to where all the muckety mucks, uh, would be would be you know, having champagne and dancing and, and doing their thing. And if that if if that photo wasn't taken, I mean, the journalist never got to go to that, right? <laughs> I did yeah. I did you know I didn't I, I don't know if I wanted to either, but journalists didn't get to go to that. Uh, maybe our publisher was there, but certainly a lot of the people within that particular region and that that city. That's where they were spending their time. It's almost like a scene from a Batman movie, right? Where Batman comes into a to a where Bruce, well, it's not Bruce Wayne, but you know, uh, Bruce Wayne might be at one of those and muck places, and then the Joker comes in, and then the bat, you know, Batman needs to get all dressed up and go deal with things and and leave the power elite in the room behind him. But that's but that's not really that different than how. Our societies continue to operate. That may not be news to any of us. None of this might be new. But when you look at journalism studies in particular, you don't see a lot of that conversation. You see so much of the conversation about how journalists, you know, the reporter who's getting paid thirty thousand dollars, twenty-five thousand dollars, or less, uh, needs to, you know, bring in solutions journalism. They need to bring in their own mental health concerns. They need to bring in issues about fact checking. In addition to to pounding out five or six articles a day, uh, and tweets, you know the social the, the new new ethics guidelines by the New York Times about social media use is so restrictive, and, and what's what's even scarier is that in twenty twenty two it says. Don't post anything on your own private social media that would have anybody question if we're covering a story objectively. And I'm sitting here saying objectively, you know, a lot of us have, and I thought a lot of journalists had abandoned the notion of objectivity a while ago. Uh, Fox News kind of uh, helped us in in a sad way that Fox News would help us, but helped us by saying, we're fair, balanced, accurate, all these different things. And, and we actually adopted that instead of objectivity. We've adopted the notion of, well, we all come with our different inherent biases. I just don't think that we've gone that far um, enough. And um, maybe we should be using this time with Joe Biden, who might have brought some sort of quote unquote normalcy to political communication to take a, a breath and really do a reckoning um, for where we are in journalism.
1: So one of the things that I'm hearing is that it could possibly have something to do with uh, conventions that have been set into place and creating uniformity in how uh, journalism is written, which uh, then uh, strays away from individuals being necessarily able to choose what topics they write about. It's all sort of drawn out for them, which is why uh, cultural issues may not be covered as often as uh, political issues.
0: Well, and I, I think that's right. And, and I think there's, there's also some um, constant fear that if we move into anything like advocacy or activist journalism, that we've, we've given up the basic tenets of what journalism is. And again, we're talking about this in a fairly, you know, in a, in a, in a U.S. Uh, context. I just want to remind us that, that we're, we're familiar with that. But there's a sense of nostalgia that journalism uh Kind of told some sort of truth uh, that we were just talking about. But if you go back with nostalgia, if you go back into the heydays of the penny press or of journalism where it was vibrant and and you know profitable, it still is profitable, quite frankly. But where it it was kind of these heydays of what. the the muckraker was or what the journalist was, Uh, you're looking at a Manhattan where there were dozens of newspapers. And there were dozens of newspapers, not because they were telling the same thing, but because they were coming from different political (laughs) vantage points, right? They had different languages. Yes, they had different politics. Yes, they had different geographic regions. Yes. That's that's what we are talking about. There was never one sort of journalism uh, that was that was existing, and none of those people were actually you know interested in a single big T truth. You know that this fake news sort of iteration that we've just gone through isn't anything new. Uh, in those days, we had you know the Sun and, and other news organizations that were publishing fiction uh, as as a way to 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 bring in audiences. Right. And, and so fake news isn't anything new. It's always been a part of journalism. And what becomes complicated is when you actually start to pick up that post truth idea again and you see, Oh, wow. You know, um, you know, truth, truth, this isn't just a really basic conversation about subjectivities. Right. But it's also, you um, this idea that journalism never was really doing that to begin with. It was always telling you a story. It was telling you an interpretation. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, we we really need to start thinking about what kind of journalism's we want in in the future and what lessons needed to be learned. It, I, I think the, the other thing is because, you know, journalism scholars tend to be of a certain mindset We really have backed ourselves into a corner with conservative and right-wing media that they'll never believe us if we say we want to come in and see how you produce the news like we would in any other news organization um, through observation or through an ethnographic study because we've said so many bad things about them. Uh, I'm not advocating for one type of news or or, or another. Uh, I certainly would say something like Breitbart is probably a news outlet, right? Uh, A lot of people would come back and say, no, it's not. And then I'd say, well, why is the New York Times a news outlet, right? Let's look at their, their ramp up to war every single time we go to some sort of war, the constant uh, focus on uh, Ukraine, but not on Rwanda. Um, and I, th- I think that there's, there's just a lot of discussion that we don't have because it's not necessarily friendly to our positions of power uh, today. And I, and I, and I'm not saying that the people who've contributed to this volume agree with what, with what I'm saying and have their own positions and, and, and things that they express throughout the book. But for me anyway, um, I've, uh, I've liked thinking about these types of ideas because these chapters kind of coalesce in a way where we can sit back and say, well, have things really changed what's changed where are we going in the future and and i think that that's uh so again i'm not i'm not speaking for the the other authors of of the particular chapters but i think if you were to sit down and read it there are some really interesting ideas that can come through and i think
1: journalism is a complex topic to begin with uh journalists are writing for people in a society the society being a moving target right with uh uh, several other things: political climate, uh, education, uh, popular media, and and other things that continue to shift, that change how media ought to be delivered, is delivered, and whether or not, uh, readers are able to access that information.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I so I I find you know the the discussions to be um also really focused around well what is that. What does that mean we do, right? So if somebody is, is forcing us to say, well, what are some of the solutions? Um, I, I, I can understand that. I, I can understand the, the desire to uh, not have confusion and, and not to have despair. But I, but I think that first we have to come down to say, well, can we actually agree what the problems are? I put together a list the other day. I, I don't know if I have it on my phone anymore. But I, I put together a list the other day of all the different types of journalisms that, that I've just – and I was on a plane. And so I was just thinking, well, what are all the different journalisms? Um, and I won't repeat the word journalism because it will just become a little too much. But there's bedroom, confessional, development, graphic. Digital, Citizen, Solutions, Social, Activist, Constructive, TikTok, Robot, Machine, Data, and the list goes on and on and on. And I'm wondering, again, are we doing ourselves a disservice you know, scholars are fit into a really neoliberal way of uh, doing research that has to be based upon what's what's fundable by philanthropic uh, or other means. What'll get them tenure and promotion? What'll get them out of uh, precarious work environments? What's okay with the students and their parents? And in the state of Florida, for instance, the legislature, which is uh, again expanding across the country, where. You know, we don't see critical race theory journalism, right? Particularly in um, journal uh, in Florida now. But I'm wondering again if we're doing ourselves a disservice. Um, are have have we segmented something so much that we don't even know what it is anymore? Um, and have we been forced to do that because of the structures and expectations of tenure and promotion, uh, of research, of what will and won't get published in journals? And, I, and I'm really kind of sad to see that I can put together a list and, you know, I won't say them now, but I've come up with probably another eight just in our conversation that are missing from that list. And I'm just wondering, you know, is is, is this a good thing? Um, and where do we go from that? We talk about this a little bit about uh, about this on my own, pod, uh, my own podcast to try to distinguish and decipher between what these different journalisms are. Um, and I'm just wondering to what end are we doing a very good job explaining what we do to citizens, to audiences, to consumers of news uh, when, when we're kind of just going back and forth by saying, well, does that fit into robot journalism? Does that fit into computational journalism? Does that fit into data journalism? Is that culture? And I don't think that makes us look really, really um, attractive to other disciplines either.
1: So with all of this decentralization of, journalism of stories of uh, uh, what is covered by the media do you, do you see any reason to first off and um, do you see any reason to and whether do, do you see that journalism ever returning to a central original form if there ever was an original form where where journalism was a specific, that thing, instead of multiple things at once.
0: Well, I think what's really unfortunate with you know Mich- Michelle Freire and others have done a lot with new with with media deserts and, and news deserts, and I think what's really sad is that we're being forced into a centralized notion of journalistic production. Uh, which also has an impact on the explanatory functions of journalism. You know, when you see news organizations that are being bought up or owned by places like Gannett or Lee Enterprises or some of these other uh, uh, organizations, a lot of their production is being done out of one newsroom. So you may have eight or nine regional news organizations that used to have their own individual copy editors Uh, Editorial staff, page designers, photographers, and that's all being centralized into one kind of hub where a person might. And and I started doing that 20 years ago, where we had a regional news or news um, organization, and I would go from paginating one page uh, for 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 one city of 20,000 people, then I'd paginate another page for another city of another 16,000 people and, and they were an hour away from each other. I had no understanding of what was going on in either of those places. Right. And um, so if I was trying to do any editing, in addition to just putting the page together, I didn't have sort of that, that decentralized ability to have autonomy in uh and how the information was going to be presented. We had a template for what the page looked like. We had an expectation of what a good photograph is, um, what a good lead on an article was, what a good headline looked like, as long as it fit within the space. And that's continuing, and has been has been exacerbated across the United States. And that is uh, essentially centralizing sort of that power of of editing and and. To the point, I think, where we're not even teaching editing in journalism programs very much uh, in the United States uh, anymore. Uh, not, and, and I think that that's really a problem where the economies of journalism have really forced us into that. My hope has been that digitization right, would, would allow for more alternative voices um, to, to come through, But I think a lot of people are really um, scared that if they're not presenting kind of that uh, very simplistic or very dominant interpretation of a news event or, more importantly, issue, right, because we've become much more issue driven, it seems, uh, in some of these uh, aspects of alternative media outlets, that they're going to either be canceled or they're going to – even even by the left, um, if they're a part of uh, the left, um, and we're we're not seeing that diversification, and I and, and and we're seeing people deplatformed, and and I think that's really really concerning that this isn't a choice that's being made by a journalist. This is this is being made by uh, the Twitter Twitter sphere, and, and and I'm really concerned uh, about that. Now, I mean, we we have. You know, maybe some some future and something like the metaverse, right? And a lot of us will be probably writing and talking about that for the next few years, and that removes us from the local levels. Remember the trickle up effect of what I think contributed to Donald Trump's okay. rise. You know, we've moved to the Twitter sphere, we've moved to centralization across geographies, we've moved to um, continuing to build up kind of. Uh, geographic areas of concentration of where our news is, i.e. Washington, D.C. and continually the East Coast. And I think that's leaving a lot of people behind, uh, people who want to do good journalism, whatever that may be. And good journalism itself is another category, believe it or not. Um, And I'm just not really... um, I'm really concerned about, about where we're going into the future, that we're being kind of forced into this by economies uh, and by, you know, a lot of faceless people out in society who have very big spread of their voices, very loud voices online. It's making it really hard. I think for journalists to kind of go their own way and say some things that might not be popular.
1: Well, and I talked a little bit about it in a class that I teach the other day, um, uh, it's marriage and family and, and just to think about how you know, media matters and journalism is important uh, in many aspects of our life. I think it, uh, what is reported, how it's reported, how it's delivered and received by audiences uh, even have an impact on uh, on, on today's family hmm. and aspects yeah. of everyday life.
0: And, you know, the funny thing is when you look at journalism and popular culture, for instance, and there's some really um, fascinating um, work that that continues to be done about that, even in Marvel movies and in D.C. And, you know, when my kid and I sit down to watch a a Spider-Man, right, there's there's a journalist there there there. So there seems to still be some sort of recognition, right, of what the journalist is um, or what the journalist could be. I mean, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came back out onto Netflix or something the other day. And, you know, at the center of that is a journalist who's out there trying to seek the truth and is being threatened, um, you know, physically and and, uh, financially uh, for not necessarily going uh, her own way and, and telling the story that she wanted to tell. And even if that was about these, you know, radioactive uh, turtle sort of things, it, it still speaks to the desire, I think, for us to want someone who stands up for the less fortunate, for those who want to stand up for those who are um, oppressed. I don't know if that's what journalism is today, even though I know that there's some really good journalists out there who want it to be that way.
1: Well, this has been a really great conversation and I've enjoyed, enjoyed talking to you about uh, the future of the presidency, journalism and democracy after Trump and maybe even going beyond the book to uh, discuss other things that are happening in media today. Uh, I, I, again, people who are listening, it's a really good book. I definitely recommend reading it uh, to not only get uh, a perspective from Dr. Gucci, but also um, all of his, all of the other authors who are part of this compilation. Uh, thank you again for jo- joining me today. But you know, one last question: What, what are you working on today? What's your next project?
0: <laughs> I'm just trying to get out papers that continually a- accumulate on uh, on my desk and. Um... Uh, one of them I think that's really interesting that'll be appearing in journalism soon is looking at how journalists change stories through the notion of liquid journalism and other scholars have, have brought that idea to the forefront. But we looked at news updates, particularly in the New York Times and the coverage of the uh, uh, protests in Portland a couple of years ago where federal agents were out and being very violent against protesters. And what we found was that using the same URL, these New York Times articles weren't just updating information about accuracy or timely information, but we're actually changing the ideological thrust of the article to the point where we would see one article published uh, maybe on a Monday morning that says, you know, police are here to uh, quell unrest and to, and to, to make things uh, uh, calm in these protests. And then the same article with the exact same URL maybe 18 hours later would say these police are bad because they're beating up uh, protesters and they're breaking laws. Um, But the journalist never actually told us what changed in the article? And we looked at this over several articles over a couple of weeks, and um, we kind of lay out how the great digital infrastructure is helpful for getting out new information, but the explanatory function um, of journalism is also changing in those updates. And we, we hope to expand that by, by using a web crawler and some other things that we're doing going forward. So that'll That's be amazing. out in a, in, in a couple of weeks. We saw some of those articles were even updated by staff months later and you know so at some point there'll be an empirical question of why are they doing this and do you know how what are they telling the audiences about what's really changing
1: and it's the same article but it's it's shifting narrative uh with the same link because there was a conversation recently about uh uh, twitter and why twitter does not have the edit button out of fear of people uh resharing it and then having a, a new message appear uh, appear as if it's associated with that person who then uh, retweeted it.
0: Yep. So I think there's a lot of really interesting things that are going to come from that, and we we call this ideological correction. Uh, and we're hoping to um, to see that uh, here in print uh, shortly.
1: Excellent. I look forward to reading that, and uh, uh, I, I definitely hope the audience members check it out. Also, it's a, a it, it's a current uh, issue. I think it's yeah, you know, <laughs> cutting edge.
0: No, thanks. Yes.
1: Well, thank you again for joining me to, today, Dr. Gucci. And I look forward to reading more of your stuff and having you on the on the show in the future.
0: Great. Thanks for having me.
1: So this is an uh, episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Have a great day.